So Tom, why do they hate crypto so much? <laughs> So Tom Hogan, thank you for being back here with me again today. Uh, we are going to talk about some covert and not so covert methods uh, that governmental institutions have been using to basically choke out industries. And we've seen this happen before. There's something called Operation Choke Point. And now people are talking about Operation Choke Point 2.0, uh, which is referring to the crypto industry, but then there's also Operation Choke Point when it comes to the climate industry. So there's a bunch of different things going on there, but um, we'll talk about the past, we'll talk about the present, and um, maybe we can start, Tom, by you kind of introducing the concept of Operation Choke Point and what it is. Yeah, thanks. You're, you're right that what's happening today is that we're seeing a lot of political pressure from the financial regulators and the banking regulators in particular to tell banks who they should lend to and who they should not lend to based on purely discretionary decisions by the regulators that seem to be overtly political. And so this seems like exactly what was happening in the Obama administration that was called Operation Choke Point. That was a program that was started around uh, 2013, about a decade ago, and ran for several years where the uh, bank regulators were pressuring banks to not lend to certain industries that were politically unpopular. So it started off with the uh, firearms industry, with gun companies and gun stores, uh, fireworks as well. They were trying to penalize uh, small dollar lenders, often called payday lenders. And that ended up spreading to several other politically unpopular industries. Um, when I was working uh, as the chief economist for the Senate Banking Committee back in 2015, 2016, we had banks that were telling us all kinds of you know political pressure that they were getting from the regulators not to lend to fossil fuel companies, not to lend to marijuana companies that had become legal in certain states, uh, not to lend to crypto companies that was new at the time, um, possibly even tobacco companies. And so these were all things that it was not illegal for them to do that. There was no law against lending to any of these companies, but the regulators just told the banks that it's better if you don't do that and politically pressured them not to lend to those uh, industries. And how much of an effect, you were kind of an insider at that time, how much of an effect does that kind of pressure have on banks? I, I think it has a pretty big effect. You know, in, in theory, the banks could push back against the regulators and even potentially sue them. And that does happen on very rare circumstances. But most of the time, they know that the regulator is basically their boss. You know, it's very hard mm -hmm. to go to your boss and say, look, that's just totally unfair what you're, what you're doing. Um, most of the time they, they know that if they don't obey these rules, if they don't follow this rule, even though it's not a specific written rule, uh, that they're going to get penalized, that they're going to get written up and possibly fined. They wouldn't have the ability to merge with other banks. They wouldn't have to, the ability to expand or make acquisitions. And so the regulators, they have a lot of... Uh, discretion and influence over what these banks are allowed to do and how they're able to run their business. And so they have a lot of leverage to get the banks to not lend to certain companies or industries. Um, again, even though there's, there's no law or rule against it. I wonder how it got to that level where, you know, over time, how did regulators end up having this much power, right? They're not elected officials or anything like that, are they? 
That's right. So this is this is uh, the regulators taking on more power than they're supposed to have. You know, we're supposed to have kind of checks and balances. But when we get to agencies that are uh, sometimes called, you know, the, the fourth branch of government, we've got these mm-hmm. agencies full of unelected bureaucrats that really come up with the, the laws and the regulations and, and are in charge of enforcing those laws. And so, so Congress... Uh, sometimes they will write a specific law in a bill, but frequently what they do is they just direct the regulators to write the rule or the regulation, and then those regulators come up with exactly how the regulation is going to be worded. They they enforce that regulation themselves. In some cases, like the SEC, even if you try to uh, sue or or oppose some rule or challenge it in court, the SEC has its own private courts that are internal to that agency, and so you can't even get outside of the SEC until you go through their court process first. And so it's just incredibly unfair the the amount of power that they hold over these banks. It it is supposed to be the case, you know, that these uh, regulators are acting impartially. But this Operation Choke Point was clearly a case where it was intended that they would use their power in a political way. And I should say, this was happening widely across the regulatory system. This is a period where after Dodd-Frank, after the 2008 financial crisis, the uh, Congress and regulators just thought we need to play a much stronger role in uh, the financial system, in what banks and financial companies are allowed to do. I think they wrongly blamed the financial companies for what happened in in the financial crisis. I would say that was largely the fault of government that incentivized banks to uh, take on way too much risk with terrible consequences. Um, But they Mm -hmm. felt like because there was this pushback that they could just push things much further than they had ever taken them before. You know, you had uh, Cordray, who is the director of the CFPB, openly saying, we're not sure if we're allowed to do this or not, but we're going to push this until courts tell us we can't. And so it was the idea, the the, uh, feeling at the time that all of these regulators were just going to take a much stronger role. And even if there wasn't a law against some of these things, that the regulators would push the banks uh, and the financial companies to not lend to companies that that they didn't like. And Tom, at that time, was it very much on people's radar, like the general public, let's say, or was it something that was more among politicians and bankers and regulators that this was going on? So so this was something that was being talked about, that the banks were saying uh, around 2015, 2016, when I was at the Senate uh, as a staffer in the Senate Banking Committee. You know, we were hearing this and there was some public information at the time, um, but it wasn't fully disclosed until around 2018, I think, is when a congressional report that reviewed all this and actually published all the documentation that this had been going on that it was an official policy by the regulators to be pushing the banks in this way, threatening them with uh, fines and and regulatory actions if they didn't comply. And we got the information about what uh, industries had more or less been blacklisted by the regulators. And so this was something that, you know, again, this is not what the regulators are supposed to do. I mean, they have, we have an official regulatory process where when they want to make a regulation, they follow the notice and comment period where they, they put out a preliminary proposal, they take feedback from the public, and then they use that to come up with a final rule. And so you have this back and forth between the public and the regulators of, okay, what is, what is supposed to be the 
actual rule. Let's have it done in a clear and transparent way. And this was mm -hmm. a specific effort to circumvent the notice and comment process, to do things in a non-transparent way, and to do things in a discretionary way where the regulators could dis uh, decide what companies and what industries were going to get funding and which ones were not. And so this was a clear attempt to go around the regulatory process, to go around the democratic process of not having any right. of these laws passed through Congress, just the regulators have the discretion to punish industries that they politically did not like. Well, you know, the veil has kind of been lifted in the last couple of years, you know, watching this kind of uh, authoritarian kind of COVID measures, things like that, too. Now the general public is noticing that there's a lot of things that happen without their consent and without their knowledge. Um, so in this case now, it's almost as if in Operation Choke Point 2.0, which is more about crypto, it's become more blatant. It's more in your face. It's like the public kind of expects that there's going to be this overreach. And so now they're doing it a little bit more out in the open. And can we maybe talk about that and kind of give some examples of what it looks like, Operation Choke Point 2.0, if that's what it is? So I, th I think that's definitely true that in, um, you know, the ethos of that uh, post Dodd-Frank period was that the regulators were going to go after all these companies. And after a little while, we realized, hey, wait, this is really unfair. What you're doing here is not supposed to be what the government is supposed to do. They're supposed to be clear and transparent and fair and even-handed and not picking winners and losers, not punishing people for their political views. Um, and so that went away for a while. And I think, um, you know, there was the idea that, like, whoa, whoa, we need to back off of this. Um, and now all that is back, right? It's like the whole, um, the whole, uh, you know, ethos or mindset or whatever of the regulators has shifted back to we're going to be aggressive, we're going to push the envelope, and we're going to see what we can get away with, even if we don't potentially have the congressional uh, ability or right to do this. And so we're seeing that in a bunch of different areas right now. You know, one of the most glaring is the SEC with Gary Gensler, that he is just going mm -hmm. after the crypto industry and is doing it in a totally unfair way and, you know, saying that uh, that he wants to um, just try to protect consumers and things like that, and yet being completely unfair in the way that they're doing it. They're, they're, uh, they're, you know, citing all these uh, uh, crypto companies and they're not even telling them why they're under investigation and they're complete, they're being not transparent about any of it. They're refusing to make any rules. And um, so, you know, that's what we're seeing in a lot of different areas uh, from the financial regulators right now um, with crypto and also with, uh, with climate regulation as well. Um, do you think then, before we get into a little bit about what those things look like, do you think that the ethos of the regulators has become more bold because they feel like there's some state power to back it? So in the previous Congress, when the Democrats controlled both houses, uh, they were appointing a lot of people that were much more aggressive on these matters to be the heads of the regulatory agencies. And so I mm -hmm. think it was partly a choice by Congress to put some very aggressive people in charge in charge of these agencies, and so they knew, you know, that they weren't going to get strong pushback from Congress um, as long as the the Democrats that had put them in charge were were still in control there. I think it's also mm -hmm. important that a lot of the things that they're doing are things that Congress knows won't be passed through the democratic process. 
You know, a lot of these ways that the, that they're trying to punish these industries, they couldn't get those laws passed, and so they, the the regulators do it instead without any congressional mandate, without any actual law that says they're supposed to be doing that. Um, and so, you know, again, like you said, they know they can do that and that Congress isn't going to push back on it because Congress wants to be doing these things and just can't. And so they're having the regulators do it instead. Right. So it's really like this symbiotic relationship between them. They're doing some things that uh, Congress, that certain members of Congress would like to do, but just can't get passed through the regulatory process, uh, through the legislative process. And so, you know, just going back 90 years in history, <laughs> recently we've been talking a lot about the New Deal at AIER, right? Because AIER was founded uh, in part as a reaction to the New Deal and all of those bad policies and as a critique. So um, can you think of any examples of the New Deal and how that kind of played out in the same way with those kind of uh, covert or indirect mechanisms of pressure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a number of the regulatory agencies that we have today were created because of the New Deal. I mean, the FDIC, uh, that, you know, the mm -hmm. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, they provide deposit insurance for banks that if a bank fails, the depositors there get some of their money back or all of it. Uh, I mean, I guess now, if you've seen the recent news, they're bailing out everybody, basically, the federal government is. Um, but they're not supposed to be doing that. You're supposed to get some of your money back. But, um, but yeah, because they do that, then they, they have to uh, regulate the banks to make sure the banks aren't going to fail because if the banks fail, then the taxpayers might be on the hook, right? And so it's a way to get more regulation of the banking industry, um, even though that's not you know, explicitly why that agency exists. The SEC as well, you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission, they're supposed to help support uh, the um, – uh, capital formation, that is when, when companies want to issue stock and they want to grow and develop, this is supposed to be a company that's supposed to assist them with that, but also to protect consumers and make sure that these companies are disclosing the areas that they're involved with and being honest with their, um, with their customers. The, the SEC, you know, doesn't actually do any of the disclosures. They require private companies to do the auditing, and a lot of times it's private companies that decide what information is going to go into those. Um, but the mm -hmm. SEC has taken a stronger and stronger role uh, in regulating all these major companies, deciding what they can and can't do, deciding what information they need to disclose, and now in crypto, deciding uh, that everything in the crypto industry should be classified as a security so that the SEC can then regulate everything in the crypto industry, basically. And so... And, and the SEC was created during the New Deal as well? Yeah, during, during the Great Depression, there are all these new agencies that we didn't have. You know, government was pretty small before then, um, you know, going from uh, 5 to 10 percent of the economy to being a quarter of the economy and now 30 percent. And it's just, you know, grown expansively. But especially in that period in the 1930s, massive expansion of government into all kinds of areas that never would have been imagined before that. Yeah. And that's what everybody alive today knows. That's right. Yeah, we can't we can't even understand what it was like to not have the government involved in all these different parts of our lives. And so, right. you know, again, it's a situation where they are supposed to try to be impartial, treat people fairly, treat companies fairly, and that's just not what they're doing at all. They are now using that authority to reward uh, politically popular industries and companies and punish companies they politically don't like. So, Tom, why do they hate crypto so much? <laughs> um, 
I, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, like, uh, it's always I. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't know what people's motives are. Right. So. Yeah. Uh, so. So for. You know, example, I'm always going to ask, though. Anyways. Uh, you know the the. <laughs> I, I try to give I try to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, the SEC uh, Gary Gensler, that's the chair of the SEC. You know, he says he's trying to protect consumers, but the things that he's doing, his actions indicate otherwise. That he's basically trying to destroy uh, the crypto industry. He's labeled. He said that every crypto other than Bitcoin should be considered a security, which is crazy and definitely not consistent with any of the definitions that we have of security, either the legal definitions or the definitions that we use in finance and economics. And so he's gone mm -hmm. way beyond his own area to try to uh, grab a, a bunch more power for the SEC and probably make a name for himself. Um, some of the things that he's doing, the lawsuits that he started won't be done. He's supposed to be out of his chairmanship in two years. Some of these things are clearly going to take more than two years. And so, you know, it's not clear that he actually cares about the result. He cares about, like, getting this in the news, growing the power of the SEC, um, yeah. and not really about protecting consumers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Like, you have to think about what motivates all of these people in the positions that they're in. But, you know, crypto kind of on a whole as an industry... Uh, I look at it like there's some different things going on there. There's Bitcoin, which kind of falls under the umbrella, depending on who you ask. Some people say that it's a separate category completely. And then there's, of course, kind of cryptocurrencies that were born out of the idea of digital money and blockchain and things like that. And so for me, when I look at that, I think, OK, well, what people seem to be trying to do with crypto and with Bitcoin, if we put them all under the same umbrella, is to have a uh, system that is in a way kind of parallel to fiat money. So it's so that you don't have to rely solely on, even though it might be linked to uh, or pegged to uh, or somehow related to fiat money, um, it's it's a kind of parallel system, you know, if you're doing it right. And so do you think that just because of that, because fiat is controlled by government, fiat is controlled by central banks, um, they just don't like that because they have their own plans. They want to keep the control. They want to maybe do a CBDC, FedCoin, whatever it is. And so this is just the competition and it's their way of choking off the competition. Yeah, I so... Um... I agree with some of that, but I'm not sure about uh, other parts. So I, yeah. when, I th when I think of the crypto industry, I think of sort of three different uh, areas. As you said, Bitcoin is kind of something that's a little bit different because Bitcoin was intended to be an alternative to the U.S. dollar. And that was kind of always the idea that it would be used as money. And it's not clear whether it's really being used as money right now. Definitely a lot of people that are buying it are speculating that the price will go up and they're not really using it for transactions. Um, but that's really the goal of Bitcoin is to try to be an alternative currency. It is being used in a lot of different countries. There are more technologies like Lightning Network that's being built on top of it that allows transactions much easier. Um, and so I see that as being more something to facilitate transactions like money. Another, mm -hmm. another area that I would consider is stable coins, where you have these cryptocurrencies that are supposed to be stable, either pegged or backed by other, um, other assets. And so that could be something like uh, tied to the price of oil or tied to the price of gold, but most commonly they're tied to the price of the U.S. dollar. So there are a couple mm -hmm. of major stable coins uh, that are 
you know, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in value that are all based on U.S. dollars. And mostly those are redeemable for real U.S. dollars. So you have this electronic currency that trades, but if you want to, you can redeem that for a U.S. dollar. Um, and so those are, that, that's like a major category that is similar to the U.S. dollar in terms of the price, but it's much easier to use. It's, it's, it's usable by people in other countries that don't have access to U.S. dollars and really to facilitate trade and have a stable value that people can use to transact in all the time. So that's another important category. Um, and then the third category that I kind of think of is, well, basically you could say all other cryptos outside of those. Um, but the main area that I, that I think of is smart contract technology. So mm -hmm. Ethereum is the biggest smart contract platform. You have some others like uh, Solana and Cardano that people are building on. But these are basically intended to be the foundation for other technologies to build, be built on top of them. And so on Ethereum, you see a, a whole potential financial system that's being built on top of, of Ethereum. And this is amazing because it's so much better and more transparent than the traditional financial system that you can track every single trade. You can see uh, in, for exchanges that are online, decentralized exchanges, you can see how where all the money is. You can see that it's there. You can see that it's 100 percent, you know, uh, reserve and that all the money is on chain. Um, and so there's and cheaper. There's so much cheaper. You see you see these transactions all the time that are hundreds of millions mm -hmm. of dollars and the fee is like five bucks, you know, or they, that costs yeah. like tens of thousands of dollars to do in the traditional financial system. And so um, and, and that's just finance. I mean, you see like social media being built on top of this. You see NFTs and art and music and all these different areas that I think are being built on top of crypto that are just huge uh, future industries that we're going to see. Um, but unfortunately, right now, like that's not going to continue if the U.S. regulators decide these things are all securities, these organizations that are not even businesses are now going to have to start disclosing all this business information. Like there's not even a regulatory process for them to go in with and register with the SEC. The SEC hasn't told them what they consider to be a security. They haven't told them what the rules or laws would be for disclosures. Um, and so it's just a complete, uh, it, it's totally fake for Gary Gensler and the SEC to be saying, yeah, this is a clear and transparent process when there is no process realistically for them to for them to use. Because I always think that it goes back to control, like, you know, controlling something for one reason or another, either it's competition in some cases of some of those things you just mentioned, maybe for the technological aspect, it's fear. So I, I, I fear it. I don't know what it's going to be. So I want to control it. Um, what do you think? Yeah, you know, so I kind of agree with that. So I'd say it like this. Um, we, you know, we have to think of, of their incentives and all the regulators, mm -hmm. they have an incentive to not let anyone take any risk because they are not rewarded if their industry is wildly successful and makes tons of money for its investors and, and low prices for consumers and benefits all Americans and how fantastic they don't, they get nothing, right? Mm -hmm. They're not rewarded at all. If Americans win, the SEC and the, and the bank regulators get nothing. But if there's right. a disaster, 
then they get penalized, right? If there's something bad that happens in the crypto industry, the SEC maybe gets penalized. If there's something bad that happens in the banking industry, then the Fed and the FDIC and the OCC, they all get penalized. And so they have the incentive to not ever have any innovation, to not ever have any risk being taken. I mean, yeah, they'll, mm. they, they pay lip service to that stuff. And I think some of them do believe that. When I talked with economists from the Fed, sometimes they would say, um, oh, we think mar- financial markets are so important. And all this stuff, like we think that that is really, really important, but they need all these regulations. I'm like, but the regulations are preventing innovation and you're not allowing them to actually grow and do the things that they're supposed to do by supporting right. financial intermediation, by supporting economic growth. And so I think that, yeah. you know, they, they just have this incentive to not let anything new happen or not allow anyone to take any, any risk. And that's, that's a really interesting point. What do those penalties look like for them? So, so, you know, it kind of depends Tough on the question. industries, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. Um, you know, part of, it is, part of it is just political that uh, it, it, for the people at the top, um, that they have to go in front of Congress and be berated. And, and mm. I don't know if it's, it's a social penalty. Yeah, I don't know in if a it's way, ever like, the case that anyone's actually fired from these jobs. They might not be reappointed. Right. They might be seeking reappointment. Some of them, I think, are seeking higher office. Right. Like we've mm-hmm. seen, uh, you know, Janet Yellen and, and move over to the Treasury from the Federal Reserve. Um, it's been rumored, rumored that Gary Gensler is trying to do something like that. And maybe that's part of his motivation. I, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. But definitely, you know, from from that perspective, we see uh, there's some political pressure for the people at the top. There's also the uh, the size of these agencies and the amount of people they employ. Um, and so getting more power and getting more money for your agency is something that, you know, is important for bureaucrats and, you know, it, it affects them, uh, their power and prestige in Washington, D.C. a lot. And so I think those kind of yeah. motiva- motivations are how they, you know, win and lose for the in the political game. Yeah, it, I think it's hard sometimes for people like myself or, you know, some ordinary people to what to to understand, like, what are the motivations of these people and what do they stand to lose? But there are some people who they really depend on their reputation and, and what they look like yeah. and, you know, how they can climb the ladder in different ways and be in that inner circle, I guess. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, another thing is that even though it's not uh, financial when they're at the agency, most of these people leave and go into industry. And if they're successful mm. and respected and well thought of, then they're going to get a job paying millions of dollars at some financial uh, company. Oh, yeah. um, and so their long-term um, benefits from appearing to be successful and well thought of are, are very important probably. Um, and, yeah, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. That's something that happens all the time. Um, and so, you know, maybe it's maybe it's beneficial to them to appear to have more power, to use these discretionary uh, actions and to, you know, use their political power to reward the politically popular industries and punish the politically unpopular industries. It's like Hayek when he talks about uh, how the worst rise to the top, you know, like there's, yeah. there's certain mechanisms in place there and there, are, you know, are people who are drawn to those positions for certain reasons. Yeah. And I, th- that's a, um, also on the ideological side, you know, the, the people that go to work at the regulators, they believe regulation is important. They believe that they're doing a great job and doing a public service. 
Um, and so they're all in favor of more regulations. And I think they tend to believe that they know better than the, than the industry. They know what industry, you know, what's good for the banking system or what's good for, in the case of the SEC, what's good for consumers, even if consumers don't know themselves. Um, and so in terms of consumer protection, you know, they think they've got to do this, that regular people just aren't smart enough to make their own decisions for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and so, you know, so I think that a lot of times they believe that they're doing a good job, um, even though, you know, looking at the research and looking at it objectively, clearly what they're doing is very damaging for those industries and very bad for the American public. Um, and so I think that's part of it, too. And, and, you know, that kind of ties in the whole idea about um, all of the climate change, uh, the idea that you need to change over, completely uh, reindustrialize and move towards a different kind of energy under this kind of whole central planning operation. Like, it's all um, for the greater good, for some idea of something that's out there that, you know, you can make a better world. Like, they're kind of these utopian schemes and they end up causing a lot of harm. While they're, while they're trying to achieve them. Yeah, and, and like we were saying earlier, those are things that couldn't get passed through Congress. You know, the Green New Deal failed spectacularly, and the Democrats right. are still trying to push all these green energy proposals through. But a lot of them, they're just not supported by the public. Like, they're, they're not mm -hmm. popular, and they're not going to pass. Um, but we have regulators that are explicitly saying, and we're, we're having politicians that are explicitly saying – the regulators should be circumventing this process. They have the power to enact some of these things, even though we can't. And so some of them are being clear that that's exactly what they want. Um, and part of the Fed's recent regulatory proposal kind of makes that clear as well. So when they um, – their, their new proposal that is about how banks are supposed to hedge their climate risk and what could potentially happen, one of the things that they say is – Banks need to have a uh, what we call a transition risk that they need to be ready in case there is new legislation passed that is going to, let's say, penalize fossil fuel companies. If we think that we're going to have laws that are going to be bad for oil companies, then that means banks are going to um, potentially be at risk from that. And so they need to hedge that risk by not lending fossil fuel companies, right? So what that means is that law doesn't have to even be passed. Just the threat of that law, just politicians yes. talking about potentially passing a law means that the regulators can enforce that law and pre prevent the banks from lending to those areas, uh, those industries, right? And so there, yeah. this, is, this is a way, again, from getting around the democratic process and just yep. without any law, without any regulation, using regulatory discretion to penalize politically unpopular industries and reward politically popular industries. We haven't totally gotten into the Operation Choke Point on the crypto side because, mm -hmm. you know, that was something that it appears to be a coordinated attack by a number of different financial regulatory agencies on the crypto industry. So for, yeah. you know, for the last couple of years, all of these agencies were kind of in a wait-and-see mode. We were expecting that this Congress, we might get some uh, legislation passed that would help clarify some of these laws. What exactly is a security that the SEC should regulate um, versus the CFTC or no one at all regulating it? What exactly are the banks allowed to do? Who is allowed to issue stable coins? Is it banks? Is it non-banks? How is that process going to work? 
Um, but a lot of that regulation has kind of been stalled. And the administration, the Biden administration, has been pushing for more regulation. And so in, in towards the end of last year, the Biden administration made some announcements and came out with a report that they said they thought there should be a lot more regulation. And then at the start of this year, in January, we suddenly had, all at the same time, a big push by the SEC to call a bunch of different token securities to go after a couple of different uh, exchanges. In, and part of this was, you know, in the wake of the failure of FTX, which was a, a regulated exchange, um, the SEC decided some of these other safer, more transparent exchanges that it would go after them. Um, and at the same time, the bank regulators all announced these new r rules, again, not specific regulations that they actually passed through the notice and comment process, but really just guidelines that said, if you get involved with these crypto industries, then we're going to maybe consider that to be risky and you might be penalized. Um, and so yeah. we had several different uh, regulations all come out basically at the same time, all attacking the crypto industry. And, you know, I wouldn't have predicted this, but it seems in retrospect like this was a coordinated attack to kind of stamp out crypto, even though Congress hasn't passed any laws or told the regulators to do that. I'm just going to pull up this article here from Pirate Wires by Nick Carter, who's a venture capitalist. And he wrote this piece called Operation Chokepoint 2.0 which is really interesting. I suggest people go and look at that themselves. And he just presents a bunch of evidence, kind of things that you're speaking about here, uh, about uh, what it looks like, which is that it seems like they're trying to basically quash crypto. But then in this second piece called, did the government start a global financial crisis in an attempt to destroy crypto? He basically outlines what are the unintended consequences of all of these things happening. And in this, there's some really interesting details as well, because, you know, we've seen Silicon Valley Bank go down, um, but they weren't necessarily really a crypto bank, right? But there was Signature. Um, and then what was the other one? Um, SVB. Silvergate. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yes, yeah, Silvergate, right? And so those two were kind of more serving crypto clients and then poof, what yeah. happened? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I, I, those are uh, great articles by Nick Carter, who, who has been uh, documenting all of this and, and one is, was one of the first people to really point out uh, how this was a coordinated attack by the, the regulators. And so that first wave of it came in January and early February, where all the regulators were making these new uh, guidelines. And again, not making it, uh, not making a specific rule, just pressure that, hey, if you're involved with this stuff, we might find it very risky and banks shouldn't be doing this or from the SEC, you know, come in and register. Uh, why aren't banks doing this? Well, there's no possible way to do that. And so then the SEC, you know, takes them all to court because claiming that they're not in compliance. And so Nick outlined uh, um, all, a, a lot of evidence about that being a coordinated attack. And then comes mm -hmm. the second round more recently with the bank failures that happened a few weeks ago. You know, the first one, um, Silvergate, uh, was a bank that was very strongly involved with a number of crypto um, companies and was very supportive of the crypto industry. They they had some losses and withdrawals and ended up closing. They actually weren't closed by the regulators, um, but they may have been receiving some regulatory scrutiny. And so they preemptively, before they actually were, became insolvent, decided that they were going to shut down. The next two, SVB 
um, and then Signature Bank were both closed by the uh, FDIC preemptively. They appeared to have been taking some losses on their portfolios. You know, this is all kind of well-known. They had some interest rate risk on their bonds. They had what mm-hmm. would have been normally considered a very safe por- safe portfolios with safe bonds. Um, but it just happens that the, the Federal Reserve had to raise interest rates because they had ignored this problem of inflation, right? Um, and so even those safe bonds um, potentially lost a lot of money. And then the you know Federal Reserve comes in, or sorry, the FDIC comes in and, and closes those companies down, takes them into receivership um, before they were in default. But they they preemptively did that, which they have the right to do. But it's curious that these were two banks that were highly involved with the crypto industry, um, and so it seems like there may have been some political motivation. And you know Barney Frank of the Dodd Frank Act, who is a bit, you know, very pro regulation, happens to be on the board of Signature and came out publicly and said we were a safe bank. We had solved the problems that they were talking about, that they were worried about, and we were shut down anyway. And I believe that this is because of our dealings with the crypto industry. Um, and then after he said that, it became public that the bank that bought uh, Signature did not buy the crypto part and so bought the bank and is divesting the whole crypto uh, segment. And so you know, this is leading a lot of people to say, look, this seems like a – you know, again, a coordinated attack on the crypto industry. These banks that were all dealing with crypto, they're suddenly out of business. Yeah, Nick Carter goes so far as to call it murder. <laughs> Did Silvergate die by suicide or murder, right? And so, and and he provides the receipts. So I definitely encourage people uh, after listening to this, if they have some time to go and read those articles, because there's a lot of detail in there. And to just try and figure out, you know, I guess we can all have a different opinion on why this is all happening. Um, There's also maybe on a last point that we can touch on, Tom, is FedNow, which they've just decided to launch at the same time of all of this, right? What's FedNow and and what might that have to do with anything? So, so FedNow is a uh, settlement system for the banking industry. It basically, you know, facilitates trades within the banking industry, um, and this is something that they've been working on for for years. Um, there, there's been a lot of pushback actually because the the banks had been developing their own private system for doing this, and mm-hmm. after spending billions of dollars on it, the Federal Reserve suddenly announced that they were going to do one instead, and so you know that wasted all the money that the banks had put in invested in this new technology. Um, but ironically, it's now the, the, with the Fed now talking about potentially doing a central bank digital currency CBDC, um, the Fed may end up doing a um, a wholesale CBDC, which means it would only be available to banks, basically, um, which means it would be exactly the same as this new system. I mean, not exactly, but very similar to this is the new, this new system that they have. And so, it's not clear what the what the benefits are. You know, the the Fed now is going to be used for payments within the banking system, um, mm-hmm. and so um, so yeah, they you know the Fed is getting more involved with this. Uh, is that going to replace uh, what's happening in crypto? I don't know. We don't know basically how involved the Fed with, wants to be with a CBDC yet or what their plan is for it. Um, but they're definitely studying it and they're definitely talking about it. Yeah, so that's, I don't know, that's something that I always keep in mind. I mean, what what it looks like to me is that 
regardless of whether the Fed creates a CBDC or whether they call it a CBDC, the trend here is for more centralization. So basically like let's kind of knock out things that we don't like, bring all of our all of our all of our stuff together under under one roof, you know? So maybe they're trying to create less and less banks, bigger banks, you know, that are more regulated, uh, more power to the regulators, you know, things like that. But like those smaller banks who are dealing in kind of niche and things like that, maybe it's just too much out of their control uh, and they don't want that kind of thing going on. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I worry that, I, I wonder that too about um, stable coins, and so it, I think it's a little bit unusual right now that the SEC decided to call stablecoins securities, even though they're clearly not securities by the traditional definitions. And I wonder what is the traditional definition of a security? So typically, typically in finance, uh, we classify a security as something that is going to make future payments to you. And so there's, it's a little bit more detailed. So you could say like it's a tradable commoditized contract that um, gives you the right to future payments. Um, okay. So, you know, uh, uh, a home loan is not a security um, because it's not really tradable. But if you package a bunch t- together to a mortgage-backed security, that is a security, right? That is tradable I and see. standardized um, and it promises you future payments. A bond promises specific future payments. A stock doesn't. Um, a stock is... is uh, an investment that if a company makes money, then they then they can give you some of the profits in the future. They don't have to, um, but it's the promise that if they're going to make payments um, from their profits, that you get some, right? And so yeah. that's a different than a commodity which doesn't make payments in the future. Something like uh, foreign currency. You know, if you hold the Japanese yen or the euro, those things aren't going to make any payments to you. But if you hold a right. Japanese bond or a euro bond, they're going to potentially make payments to you in the future, right? And so that's okay. that's I just the most wanted to clear that up. Yeah. So basically, like we can see that a crypto, you know, a stablecoin is not a security. It's yeah. pretty clear. So, so I've made, I've, I've argued that um, we can apply the same. That, I should say that is the distinction that we use in finance. That is not the legal distinction. The distinction in the law is basically there's no congressional mandate, uh, congressional law that was ever passed. There's no rule by the SEC that was ever passed. And so what we have is a collection of court agreements where some court case comes up and the judge just you know makes something up. Like they they're often not really uh, experts on financial regulation or, or financial theory. And so they just make up some rules that sound good to them at the time, and that becomes the law, right? And so that's basically what we have. The main court case is, is uh, Howey. The, the Howey test is what we a lot of times refer to as the, question, the, the test to decide if something is a security. Um, but I mm. think this, I've argued that this traditional definition from finance is really actually something we could apply to crypto because cryptocurrencies are issued on a blockchain and blockchain is totally public and transparent. And so you can look at that token and see, can this token possibly pay, make payments? Some of them can't. Some of them will never be able to make payments. They're issued on the blockchain permanently, won't ever be able to make payments. Others can and do actually. And so I think those that make payments should be classified as securities under the traditional definition and others shouldn't. And so we have basically a, a, a way to decide this. It's just not the law, it's not the way that it's being used right now. And so that would be a useful way. Um, but back to the, the, the reason I brought up stable coins is, you know, the Federal Reserve, they don't, they don't really 
Some people at the Federal Reserve don't want to be involved with retail transactions. That is, they don't want to deal with end customers. They want to deal with banks. They only deal with banks. And so having the banks service the customers, you know, that's better for them. The Fed doesn't want to have like a 800 number that you have to call to talk to people on the Fed and customer support. Like they don't need to deal with any of that stuff. And the government is really not good at dealing with that stuff. And so if they can have... Fedwire or CBDC that's going to do wholesale to the banks, maybe that's enough. And then they can have uh, stablecoins do the retail part of providing a payment service based on the U.S. dollar to retail customers. That might be the best situation for them. Um, and so they've talked about how, you know, Chip Powell has said, I'm not even sure it would be legal for us to do a retail CBDC. Maybe the best thing is for them to stick with the, the wholesale, stick with regulating and working with the banks, but then allow banks or other financial companies to provide these CBDCs, uh, to b- provide these stable coins that would be a way to use the dollar as an electronic uh, cryptocurrency. All in all, I'm a little bit nervous about what's going to happen. <laughs> Just thinking about, you know, um, all of these, all of these possibilities that that are in front of us, you know, and uh, we've seen this coming for a few years now, but it's actually kind of scary that these things are in the process of happening and things like Operation Choke Point 1.0 and 2.0 and Climate Point 0 are all terrifying, um, but it's kind of good that it's out in the open, so... Um, is there anything that you wanted to just add before we wrap up on Operation Choke Point or any of the things that we've been discussing? Yeah, you know, I think that this recent power grab by these agencies is not good. And even just a year or two ago that we thought, especially in crypto, that it was going to be something where they wait and see what Congress decides. And instead, they've just gone ahead and taken action. And in a purely discretionary political way, uh, totally undemocratic. And so I think that's that's terrible. Um, but there are a lot of people on the left that don't want transparency. They see that as something that has hindered their agenda, and they know that they can't get some of the things that they want passed through the democratic process. And so they're encouraging the, they're explicitly encouraging these regulators to do things that they know wouldn't be allowed. And I think it's you know it's terrible and undemocratic. And so I hope that we will have more reasonable discussion in the, you know, in the next year or two when we're going to head towards another election. I hope there will be pressure to have, you know, transparent and trustworthy actions by these regulators rather than things that are discretionary, non-transparent and undemocratic. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time, Tom. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, and we'll see how the situation unfolds. Yeah, thanks. It's It's been a pleasure talking with you again, um, and I'm sure there will be a lot more action on these areas, and so you know, maybe we'll end up talking about it more in the future. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Thanks a lot.